This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Good morning, I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. We'll be looking at the new season in entertainment and the arts on this first Sunday morning of the fall, and we'll also be looking at the uncertainty that awaits so many young people now coming of age. Every generation experiences growing pains, of course. So is there anything unique about the challenges facing the so-called millennial generation? That's a question our Ben Tracy will be pondering in our Sunday Morning cover story. The millennial generation has had a tough time entering the workplace. And now that one in three American workers is a millennial, their performance matters to all of us. We need these people to succeed, don't we? We do. We really need these young workers. Um, and they have a lot to contribute if we can understand them and help them along their way. Ahead on Sunday morning, millennials hit the workplace. But does the workplace know what just hit it? Juliana Margulies is an Emmy winner three times over and one of the stars to keep an eye on as the new TV season begins. Jane Pauley paid her a visit. <laughs> Juliana Margulies is beginning her seventh season as The Good Wife, who publicly stands by her husband, an unfaithful, disgraced politician. Does Alicia stay with Peter? Does she find love? Or does she find love? What a way to put it. Well, that is kind of, I mean, yeah. I think she loves Peter. I do, but I don't think there's a romance there. Did I disgust you? For a while. Ahead on Sunday morning, Juliana Margulies, on screen and off. Could the smell of success be just a phone call away? Rita Braver has found an inventor who thinks so. Oh, look at this place over here. Look at the chocolate. Suppose your phone could capture oh. not just scenes of a trip to Paris, but scents as well. If you could send a tweet that communicated the complete olfactive experience of that restaurant, that would be interesting. That would be very interesting. <laughs> Ahead on Sunday morning, David Edwards and the O-Phone. As we've mentioned, the new season is overflowing with culture and entertainment offerings. We've recruited our Tracy Smith to guide us through it. Oh, there's so much more to fall than leaf peeping. Starting this morning, we preview the bounties of the season in music, movies, books, and art. Are people allowed to actually go 
under here? They are, definitely. So pull up a chair and get ready for all the oversized offerings of fall ahead this Sunday morning. Nora O'Donnell has questions for former Fed Chief Ben Bernanke. Moraka takes us through the just restored St. Patrick's Cathedral. With Steve Hartman, we'll watch a small wonder of a football player. And more. Next. This generation does score a little higher on narcissism. Making sense of millennials. And later, the new season in art. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it millennials we've heard that label loosely applied to the generation that started coming of age around the year 2000 but mysteries abound we call our sunday morning cover story growing pains it's reported by ben tracy kids i don't know what's wrong with these kids today it's more of a complaint than a question, and it dates back long before 1963's Bye Bye Birdie. What's the matter with kids today? The generation that follows your own never quite seems to measure up. The greatest generation spawned the baby boomers, and the boomers gave birth to the millennial generation, so named because they are coming of age in the new millennium. Born between 1981 and the year 2000, there are some 75 million millennials in this country, and they're ready to take over the workplace. Though plenty of people think the new kids in the office have a lot to work on. There was a headline that said, we are raising a generation of deluded narcissists. Do you believe that to be true? Well, we do know from looking at narcissism scores among college students from the 80s uh, to more recently that this generation does score a little higher on narcissism. However, that's certainly not all of them. Uh, it's just that it's moved from maybe one out of eight to about one out of three who score very high in narcissism. Jean Twenge is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. Twenge has poured through decades of self-assessments by millions of young people in which they reported how accomplished, how motivated, and even how special they consider themselves. The title of Twangy's book about millennials, published by Simon & Schuster, a CBS company, seems to say it all. One of Twangy's research papers lays it out in stark terms. Millennials in the workplace are defined by, quote, the combination of not wanting to work hard, but still wanting more money and status. This generation's facing a, a challenging, competitive job market. Uh, and the problem is, as I see it, they haven't been prepared for things to be so challenging, perhaps because they got so much praise uh, growing up and they got a trophy just for showing up when they did sports leagues. Unfortunately, the workplace doesn't work that way. You have to do a lot more than show up. Are millennials adapting to the workforce or is the workforce adapting to them? That's exactly the question that's going to shape the next 10 years. The beginning of 2015 marked the point when millennials became the dominant generation in the American workforce. More than one in three workers are now millennials. Chet, what did the market research turn up? What? Oh, I Googled them, but the results were weird. You didn't use the market research database that we spent thousands of dollars a month on and that you were specifically trained to use. This clash of generations has been parodied on YouTube. I quit. A very millennial media outlet. Stop. The video mocks both millennials as well as those boring, over-the-top corporate training films. Here's that report that you asked for. Oh. Thanks. Morgan did exactly what was asked of her. Nothing more, nothing less. She expects a raise and promotion. Thanks. Junior Executive Manager of Data Consulting. Is that better than Assistant Manager of Junior Accounts? Yes. Oh my God. Hey, Drew. The video was made by Stefan Van Engen, age 39, a member of Generation X, who works at Bedrocket Media, which is largely staffed with millennials. I don't think of this generation as the most uh, self-deprecating generation. I think they're very sensitive. Van Engen estimates three-quarters of his audience are millennials themselves, so keeping them in on the joke is essential, even if the truth sometimes hurts. 
the need for praise is absolute. That is a big, in my opinion, issue in our generation. We don't particularly respond well to criticism, and we absolutely want praise immediately. Erin Lowry created the blog Broke Millennial to share advice and network with her fellow millennials trying to enter the workforce after the Great Recession. Although she spreads her gospel online, Lowry sees internet culture itself as part of the problem. If you put a picture on Facebook, you want to be in double, triple digit likes by the next hour or two. You know, if you put something on Facebook and nobody likes it, it feels like, oh, I failed. And it's the instant gratification cycle that we've gotten into that has led to a bit of a problem in the workforce as well. But Lowry points out the craving for positive feedback can get positive results. Okay. If you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to be a creator, if you want to start something your own, you have to have, to a degree, a delusional narcissistic belief that you can do it. Just consider these millennial success stories. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, Iraq veteran turned congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, or biotech billionaire Elizabeth Holmes. The stereotypes we hear are that millennials are narcissistic, that they're overconfident, that they don't respect authority or the way things have been done. What generation doesn't have those feelings? I grew up in the 60s. We were totally rebellious. And, you know, it's just, I think it's part of being young. Doug Woods is a baby boomer, an unabashed advocate of the millennials he employs at his Northern California construction firm, DPR. A recent survey reports only about a quarter of millennials believe their employer is taking advantage of their full potential. When I started out, I told the, the president of the company when he first interviewed me, he asked what I wanted to do. I said I wanted his job. I hate that where I used to work, they, the leader used to talk about people weren't ready because they didn't have enough gray hair. The hell with that. There's some really smart people out there. Work with them and let them help you grow. You're a millennial at heart. I think this is why this is working out for you. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you all fall into this category of millennials. Do you like the term? Do you use the term? Never. I feel like we don't really compare ourselves to other generations and it's just, you know, we're people. DPR's millennial employees, Alice Lee Young and Michael Pearson, may not embrace the label, but they confess it sometimes fits. I mean, yeah, at, at times I, I certainly am a little bit impatient and I do find myself, you know, I, if that's a characteristic of our generation, then that, that's why I'm it. <laughs> the way Deep T. Bud Kamkar and Brian Bolandi see it, those traits are nothing to apologize for. The whole idea of everyone's a winner, you can be anything you want when you grow up. Did you hear those things growing up? Kinda. Does it set you up for disappointment though at some point when you realize there is a limit? That's life. <laughs> You're not always gonna get what you want, but you can, you know, if, if you set your goals higher than, you know, that are really attainable, and if you fall short, you've still done great. And now that millennials are settling into the office, it won't be long before they get to work on worrying about the next generation. I'm 28 years old and I found myself saying kids these days. Oh, like, see, it's happening to you already. What just happened? The slippery slope. <laughs>
that his safety could not be guaranteed. He even briefly threatened to cut the rest of his visit short. But in the end, the Soviet leader continued his tour, including a stop in America's farm belt. Today at Coon Rapids, Iowa, Nikita Khrushchev went out into the fields to see for himself the secret of Iowa's success. Khrushchev wound up his visit with two days of talks with President Eisenhower at Camp David. And at his departure, he sounded an optimistic note. I hope that in uh, the relationships between our two countries, we will be able to use uh, more and more often uh, the good short American word, OK, uh, until we meet again, friends. As it happened, things would not always be OK between the two countries, nor are they today. With tensions mounting over Ukraine and Syria and other issues, President Obama is scheduled to meet tomorrow with Russian President Vladimir Putin at the United Nations, not Disneyland. Next, a new superstar in the world of art. The mission of this museum is to connect the widest possible audience with contemporary art. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The new season brings all kinds of events in the realm of entertainment and the arts. Tracy Smith launches our fall preview with a look at some coming attractions at museums. If to everything there is a season, this fall may be the season for art. Starting with the brand new Broad Museum in Los Angeles, housed in a building that is, in itself, a remarkable work. Designed by architects Diller, Scofidio, and Renfro, its exterior has been likened to a cheese grater, but maybe since I hadn't had breakfast yet, I saw it differently. It almost feels like you're in a, a waffle, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Well, it is a specially designed skylight that's 23 feet up in the air, but when you're in the gallery, you notice just the beautiful light on the art. Joanne Heiler is director and chief curator. The mission of this museum is to connect the widest possible audience with contemporary art. It's really that simple. The museum, which opened to the public this past week, houses art collected by philanthropists Eli and Edie Brode, more than 2,000 works of post-war and contemporary art. Offerings from Andy Warhol, Roy Lichtenstein, Jasper Johns, Jeff Koons, Cindy Sherman, and Keith Haring, just to name a few. And what they spent a fortune amassing, you can enjoy for nothing. There's free general admission. It's free. It's free. We simply didn't want there to be any economic barriers for people to come and enjoy the collection. You can visit one gallery at a time. You can really dive deep into one artist's work that you're very, very interested in. And I think you can have a little more organic relationship with the collection over time. That's what I hope for. But don't shed a tear if you can't make it to L.A. Over the next few weeks, there are dozens of noteworthy exhibits opening all over the country. In New York, the Whitney unveils a new Frank Stella exhibit, and at the Museum of Modern Art, Picasso sculptures. Picasso will pop up again, this time in 2D, at Washington, D.C.'s Phillips Collection exhibit, Gauguin to Picasso, a nod to the modern and avant-garde masters. Boston's Museum of Fine Arts features Dutch painting in the age of Rembrandt and Vermeer, while the Cleveland Museum of Art says bonjour to the works of Claude Monet and Henri Matisse. In Texas, Houston's Museum of Fine Arts hosts Mark Rothko works, and the Dallas Museum of Art surveys Jackson Pollock's black paintings, made at the height of his popularity. Of course, these shows are just a sampling, but safe to say there's something for almost every palette this art season. Still to come? Introducing Ophone. Ophone is like a phone for aroma. Dial O for odor. But first... This cathedral, simply put, is cracking. Old for new. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's the new season on Sunday morning, and here again is Charles Osgood. Pope Francis saw the truth of the saying, what's old is new, when he visited St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York this past week. And now with Mo Rocca, we can too. Every Sunday morning in New York, the bells of St. Patrick's echo through the city, beckoning Catholics and non-Catholics to the cathedral's massive bronze doors. Well, everybody, welcome to Sunday Mass here at uh, St. Patrick's. We call this America's Parish Church. We got over six million people a year that come through here. They want to see St. Patrick's. May Almighty God have mercy on us. And there is a lot to see. A neo-Gothic landmark modeled on the great cathedrals of Europe, St. Patrick's interior is bathed in natural light through a prism of stained glass. An expression of uplift and hope, deeply rooted, says New York's Cardinal Timothy Dolan, in the American experience. Almost all of the great ethnic parades, Columbus Day, the Steuben Day Parade, the Puerto Rican Day Parade, would begin with a mass here at St. Patrick's. St. Patrick's Day, of course, being the biggest. It was the flood of Irish immigrants in the middle of the 19th century that gave birth to St. Patrick's. Fleeing famine and persecution, Irish Catholics were met with hostility here in America. But they found a champion in this man, Archbishop John Hughes. His nickname was Dagger John because he would stand up and defend the rights of his people who were very poor and were very forgotten. And he said, we want to make a statement, and I want to build, he called it a cathedral of suitable magnificence, to, to make the statement that Catholics have arrived. They are at home. To make his statement, the archbishop turned to the aristocratic James Renwick, Jr., designer of the famed Smithsonian Castle in Washington, D.C., and considered the premier American architect of the time. Ah, you brave Irish people, wherever you be, I pray stand a moment and listen to me. Your sons and brave daughters are now going away, and thousands are sailing to America. It took more than 25 years of mostly immigrant labor to realize Renwick's vision. And when its twin spires were completed in 1888, St. Patrick's stood as the tallest building in New York City. But after years of neglect, the cathedral was showing its age. This cathedral, simply put, is cracking. The bricks are crumbling and falling. We want to clean our beloved cathedral, and we've got a little sample of what that'll look like, right? Which is why in 2012, Cardinal Dolan announced a restoration of St. Patrick's at an eye-popping price tag. The, the restoration is costing $175 million. Yeah. At the same time, parishes, schools yeah. are being closed. Here's the only answer that I can give. We had to do it. It was survival. The cathedral is built uh, out of Takahoe marble. Takahoe marble is a beautiful, wonderful stone, but it's very soft. Architect Rolando Crayer of the firm Murphy, Burnham & Buttrick was charged with overseeing the daunting task. And we found some areas where uh, the, the stone, the Takahoe marble, to the touch, it would pulverize in your hand. Some 30 stories of scaffolding was erected outside and inside, allowing tradespeople access to every inch of this massive structure to clean and re-leaden panes of glass, restore more than 9,200 organ pipes, and remove soot from the cathedral's 19 chapels, including its most popular, Our Lady of Guadalupe. 
She was just added with the gift of the Latino immigration. Now this shows a continued uh, presence and gift of the immigrants who have always found a spiritual home at St. Patrick's. Way to go, you guys. Good job. Thanks for all you're doing. Just as the original laborers and artisans had done, the restoration work was performed largely by hand and by a new generation of immigrants, like Peter Cuffey. You're taking out a nail that someone banged in there maybe yeah. 120, exactly. 30 years ago. Exactly. I have to try and make it look exactly as I had it, you know? I have come over here and watched them with toothbrushes to get into some of the, some of the nooks and crannies of, of the marble. The restoration process has taken three years. Boy, am I ever eager to get this done with. Yeah, to, to we'll be able to walk around and the oh, noise I think and the all. No. no. <laughs> and like any building of its age, the cathedral has its secrets. You stand underneath it and say, oh my God, how did I build this cathedral out of stone? And then when we started working on it and we go up to the attic, we realized that it is not stone. To save money after the Civil War, the whole upper half of St. Patrick's was constructed of wood and plaster. Yes, it only looks like marble. Project engineer, Kira Brady. So this is the ceiling of the cathedral. Uh, this is all plaster. It's painted to look like stone, and they come in in line with the gold paint. So when you're standing on the floor, it looks as if it's stone. There have been some sobering discoveries as well like the markings left by firefighters on the walls and windows of the cathedral's south spire. When the firemen come to inspect it up there, they will carve their names. Huh. And when we were doing the restoration, uh, they thought, should we cleanse all of these and sand these out? And we said, absolutely not, particularly because before 9-11, when the firefighters uh, came here for the inspection and they carved their names in, and those men lost their lives. Mo, this is the crypt below the main altar, okay? Also kept within the cathedral are many of the church's past leaders, including the remains of Bishop John Hughes. There he is, and I got his cross here. And the man known as the Catholic Billy Graham, the Emmy Award-winning Bishop Fulton Sheen. He's the most popular preacher we've ever had. I pray every day to St. Raphael to guard me when I fly and when I travel. TWA, Travel with Angels. And Milton Berle used to say, how do you get better ratings than me? And Fulton Sheen said, I got better writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> Papa Francesco, welcome to St. Patrick's Cathedral. <laughs> pope Francis's journey to St. Patrick's on Thursday marked the fifth time a pope has come to the cathedral. No other church outside of Italy has hosted more papal visits. A tribute to America's parish church, now restored to its original luster. There's about 40 micrograms of port wine there. A whiff of things to come. I can definitely smell it. It smells great, yeah. It's just ahead. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Does a degree in chemical engineering Guarantee that its holder will enjoy the sweet smell of success? Rita Braver investigates. Welcome to the glamorous and strange world of inventor and Harvard professor David Edwards. Not long ago, Edwards' latest creation, the Laboratoire, opened in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's a design center exhibition space, and futuristic restaurant and bar all in one. The Laboratoire is another outlet to showcase Edwards's grand ideas and Willy Wonka-like inventions like the WAF. It's a carafe that you put your favorite 
drink into. And when you tip it on the side, here I have port wine, it creates a cloud of port wine. The cloud enters my glass like a liquid itself. If you look at this cloud, there's about 40 micrograms of port wine there. And I can actually sip this out with a special straw. I can definitely smell it. It smells great. This is a range of air nutrition products. Range Another of his products is AeroLife, Little puff. which Edward says allows you to inhale your way to better sleep or greater energy. Totally give you energy. You will see. Oh, good. My family is going to want me to have more energy, right? You'll need to walk away with a sleep product, which is going to help calm you down. This is the place where you actually work with students. I do. Edward's got his PhD in chemical engineering. The notion here of intellectual property is... Within the classroom, he teaches students to turn their big ideas into real-world products. I'm a professor of idea translation at Harvard. Of course you are. <laughs> he began his career by creating a company which came up with designs for inhalable medicines and vaccines. He did well enough with that to be able to fund his very first laboratoire in the heart of Paris. This is the O-phone. This and continuing his fascination with aromas, Edward started working on projects like the O-phone, a kind of telephone for scents which he hopes will revolutionize the way we send and receive information. So if you have a great meal at the world's best restaurant, if you could send a tweet that communicated the complete olfactive experience of that restaurant, that would be interesting. That would be very interesting. <laughs> Ophone is like a phone for aroma. It works with a mobile messaging app that lets you take a picture, tag it with over 300,000 possibilities, and send it as an O-note to friends. As Edward shows in this video, the O-Phone comes programmed with thousands of smells that users can trigger when they send an O-Note. Instead of just talking about sensory experiences from long distances, we can actually share them. Here, look at the chocolate. Using the O-Phone, you could even communicate a series of smells, say the experience of a walk through Paris. Why would it not be enough to just send pictures of these little things? Why would you want to send someone the smell of a chocolate shop instead? Actually, the smell of chocolate makes me want and love chocolate. It has a physiological <laughs> effect on me. If I tell you about chocolate, even if I show you a picture of chocolate, it doesn't have the same effect. And so there's something about walking to the streets of Paris with a nose, which is completely unlike seeing a film of Paris. Edwards admits that the O-phone could cause a real stink in the wrong hands. Are you worried about this having bad uses? You know, people sending each other unpleasant aromas as an insult, or, yeah, well, you know, yeah, if the yeah, guy dumps yeah. you, you yeah, yeah. send him something yeah, yeah. that's appropriate yeah, in your mind? So we can't do anything really uh, that uh, potentially changes the world and not have the potential that it will be used um, in a negative way. Things can go wrong, and you probably can get a bad odor message from your <laughs> ex-boyfriend. Still, if Edwards has his way, the O-phone may be coming soon to a store near you. And if that's not cutting edge enough, consider another of his big ideas, what he calls the Wiki Pearl, a scoop of frozen yogurt in an edible skin. I like that, I like that. What we're really interested in, Rita, is eliminating plastic in food packaging. But we're moving on to other kinds of food products, like ranging what? from from water to juice to yogurt to cocktails to uh, desserts. So I get like a cocktail in a little pellet like you, this? You could get, well, like a glass. grape. It's like a grape of uh, <laughs> vodka, absolutely, um, which you could have in the freezer or you could have grapes of wine that are in a bottle. And so you can then take these little portion control grapes of wine. What's really interesting too Sounds is that- Sounds good to it, me. It is good. <laughs> so if you'd like to sip one of David Edwards's fanciful cocktails, just sidle up to the bar at the laboratory in Cambridge, and after a few cocktails, you might even be inspired to pursue your own big idea. Next, a small football player's big ambitions. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A small wonder of a football player has made a big impression on his teammates, not to mention on our Steve Hartman. 
Of all the great kids at American Heritage High School in Plantation, Florida, the one student who stands above the others is the one who stands below them. 17-year-old senior Adam Reed is just four foot five. He's small because his body can't process growth hormone. Why are you walking so fast? But in spite of that, or maybe because of that, Adam has taken on a most unlikely role here. Football running back. It's crazy, but it's true. What made you think you could do it? Nothing ever told me I couldn't. Adam weighs in at about 100 pounds with the helmet. Most of the other guys are at least two times that size, and yet each and every one of them looks up to Adam. He blows away your initial expectations. Works harder than a lot of people. That's what everybody's saying. You ever heard about the little dog with the big dog heart? Yeah. Like a little chihuahua? Yeah. That's how he is. He, he doesn't care who's bigger than him and still do it. Adam works out every day like he's getting ready for the Pro Bowl. Even though when he joined varsity, he knew he might never get in a single game. He's fourth string, but completely unfazed by it. Just care for what you do and love what you do, and the outcome will be remarkable. Which leads us to remarkable. Last week, with 20 seconds to go in the game and Heritage well ahead, Coach Mike Rumpf gave the nod to number two, Adam Reed. Coach told Adam to take a dive before he got tackled, and Adam completely ignored him. And he'll get to the second level. He'll get out to the 40-yard line. No, nah, yeah, well, I think his ideal chain when the ball got his hand. <laughs> well, he's trying to run through tackles and get to the end zone. Coach Rumpf says he wasn't surprised. Here it is again. As you can see, Adam picked up five yards on the play. Not quite the touchdown he was hoping for, but still everything he dreamed of. I don't feel like I'm out of the ordinary. I just feel like part of the team. And that's how everyone should feel. Who needs altitude when you've got his kind of attitude? 44 Chicago, take one. Still to come, a different side of Juliana Margulies. In England, you say, are you going up the stairs? And in American, we say, are you going up the stairs? And later? In a massive financial panic, if banks fail, the implications for the average guy in Main Street are going to be massive. Former Fed chief Ben Bernanke, adding it all up. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Juliana Margulies stars in one of the most acclaimed series on TV's primetime schedule. What's the good wife like in real life? Jane Pauley has our Sunday profile. After which, we'll hear more new season TV highlights from contributor Jamie Wax. Alicia Florick's office. Alicia Florick. Hello, this is Alicia Florick. Television audiences know Juliana Margulies as Alicia Florick. The good wife of a disgraced, philandering politician. I'm innocent of the abuse of office charges. You think I give a damn about that, Peter? They're playing a tape in Grace's computer lab of you sucking the toes of a hooker. A stay-at-home mom who goes back to work as a lawyer when her husband goes to prison. I'm asking a simple question. You are not, sir. Mrs. Florek. You are piercing the Fifth Amendment right. Mrs. Florick, shut up. No, sir. 44, Brooklyn, take two, Apple Mark. As Margulies launches a seventh season, Alicia has changed. And maybe Juliana Margulies has, too. I admire the way she is silent more than she speaks. And I realize it's so much more powerful to actually think before you speak than to just go off the top of your head, which was so... Um, the way I used to react, I hold my emotions on my sleeve, and she holds them so deep down. It had been her idea to meet at the Booth Theater on Broadway, but she was uncharacteristically late. I was late. I'm sorry, I'm never late. Punctuality is big with you. Huge. Seriously. Yes. I'm a punctual girl. Yeah. I, I think it has to do with growing up when I was young and I was always late for school, and I hated it. And by the time I was in high school, I lived eight miles from the school. I, I got up at five and I walked. I walked to school every day in high school. Because I, I could not know. bear to be late. <laughs> her mother was a former ballerina. Punctuality was not her thing. My mom was sort of a soul-searching, trying to find herself. And her father, 
He wrote Plop, Plop, Fizz, Fizz, oh, what a relief it is. Plop, Plop, Fizz, Fizz. One of advertising's most memorable lines. How did you become who you are? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think it's a confluence of many different things. I was lucky to have two incredibly loving parents, but I was also the product of a divorce and of an instability in my life with where we were going to live and what country we were going to live in. What country we were going to live in. Yeah. You know, I was born here in New York, and then we moved to France when I was very young, too. And then we moved to England. And then we came back to the States when I was six. And then back to England again. Can you switch on and off your accents? Can I, I can. I want to hear. <laughs> is this an actress going to be talking to no, me? No. Okay. It, it would is... just be me, you know, sort of. Well, I grew up in Sussex, so it's a bit of a different accent. It's not quite London. It's a bit more um, country, in a way. But, you know, the, the difference between English and American is in, is in, in England you say, are you going up the stairs? And in American we say, are you going up the stairs? With all the moving around, Margulies often felt like a fish out of water. I was the American girl in England. When I came to America, I was the English girl in America, and I went back to England. <laughs> like, I never quite fit in my shoes until I got to college. And when I went to Sarah Lawrence College and got up on that stage, the first play I was cast in, I felt like I was home. An actress was born. And in 1994, at age 28, she became a star. In the role of Nurse Carol Hathaway on ER, opposite George Clooney, she earned her first Emmy. But after six years, Margulies decided to leave the show, reportedly turning down a $27 million contract to return to the city she considers home, New York. She's coming this way. She had a recurring role on The Sopranos. In the trade, this is called the Ben Franklin Close. Placing the pen on the line you want someone to sign. Theoretically, it makes it harder for them to have second thoughts. And made some movies, including Snakes on a Plane. Rick! Rick! And was happily, determinedly single. And it's so funny, my mom, when I was about 35, I said to her, you know what? I never want to have kids, and I never want to be married. I love my freedom. And she said, oh, darling, don't say that. Every woman should get married at least once in their life. <laughs> Which can kind of give you an idea of my colorful mother. Um, and she said, it's important. I hope, I hope you experience it at least once. And I rolled my eyes. But then... I met Keith when I was 39. Keith Lieberthal had never even heard of Nurse Hathaway, or Juliana Margulies, for that matter. I'd only ever dated actors, and I just felt like I needed to work with them only. But he was interested. Well, he was sort of hitting on me in a way, and I, I was charmed, but I, I just, just assumed he was an actor. Also, we met through a mutual friend who was an agent, so, you know, and, and it was a whole bunch of actors, theater actors, at this dinner. Been there, done that. She wasn't interested. Okay, so he says... <laughs> but, um, um, he said, no, I'm, I'm actually a lawyer. I was so stunned. And then I thought, well, what kind of law do you do? And he said, well, I was a Wall Street litigator for six years, but I've just recently quit. Uh, I didn't like who I was becoming. And I, I thought, oh, my oh, God. I like where this is going. I, I like this man. He's a thinking, feeling, smart human being. He proposed in Paris, and she said yes. We came home, and six days later, I found out I was pregnant. And, which, you know, at 40 was not just shocking, but... Miraculous. Miraculous. So I said, well, we'll wait until the baby's born, and then we'll get married. And Keith just said, no, I want to get married with you pregnant. And I said, great. So I waddled down the aisle at seven months pregnant. A year after the birth of their son, Kieran, CBS offered her a starring role in The Good Wife. Look how pretty Bond it is. Court. It's very pretty in Bond Court. Don't get jealous of where I spend my days. <laughs> 44 Chicago, take one, half more. Season seven finds Alicia Florek restarting her legal career. You're shooting the 13 pages of yeah. script today. Today's 13 pages. You're in every scene. Right. And 
When the crew breaks for lunch, she'll get the next day's script. My routine is I go into my dressing room and I shut the door and I put a do not disturb sign on the door and I lie down on my couch and I, I study all my lines for tomorrow. So at least it's in there. But it's not in there too much that I'll forget the lines I need for today. Um, but that's all I do. What's your IQ? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it's high. The enrollment agreement. Shot on a Brooklyn soundstage, the show's proximity to Broadway has attracted theater veterans like Christine Baranski. My dad was a sloppy drunk. I said I'd never be like him. <laughs> You're not a sloppy. Would you want to run for state's attorney? What? And Alan Cumming, who plays political operative Eli Gold. Did Julianne Michaelis have anything to do with your... Oh, yes, I, absolutely, because, you know, I, I, had, I came into it about two-thirds of the way through the first season, so all I knew about it was that it was about Jules, and I knew it would be, you know, she's got sort of quality in her veins. Julianne Margulies for The Good Wife. Quality that's been recognized with two Emmys for Best Actress. Last year... And the Emmy goes And in to 2011. Juliana Margulies, The Good Wife. And to my spectacular husband, I love being your good wife. Juliana Margulies, at age 49, says she has much to be grateful for. There's a different appreciation you get for things when you're at a different time in your life. And I obviously waited for the right time, and I got lucky. I pretty much say it every night when I go to bed, how lucky I am. And, and with everything, I love my job. I love it. Downton Abbey. Girls. The Americans. Bloodline. How sensitive. So you think you can Big dance. Bang Theory. Kimmy Schmidt. The Left Stop! So many shows. And so little time. At last week's Primetime Emmy Awards, host Andy Samberg opened by poking fun at the endless number of shows on television. I watch Orange the New Black, Better Call Saul, Downton Abbey, The Wolf Hall. Are you surprised at how television has changed during the course of your career? I'm gobsmacked, I, uh, yeah. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, best known for her movie roles in Scarface, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and The Perfect Storm, has joined TV's crowded ranks. Action. Boyle and Harris will drive This fall, she plays Nazreen Peran, a special agent in charge at the FBI in the new CBS series, Limitless. It's about this fellow who comes across this drug. We give him the option, you can go to prison or you can come work for us, and he comes to work for us. Let's see what's in here. Matt Zoller-Seitz is one of the television critics at New York Magazine. Blacklist, it's back. And that's the, the new season of Blacklist. It is the new season of Blacklist. He has an overflowing stack of DVDs and online downloads to screen and critique. What does the universe of TV now look like? Imagine that you're climbing a mountain and then you get all the way up to what you think is the top. That was just one plateau. And then you keep going and you get to another plateau and another, and there's always going to be more television. And despite all the talk about DVRs, according to Nielsen, 86% of us still watch TV the old-fashioned way at a program's regularly scheduled time. And this fall, there are more choices than ever. This is best time ever. From variety shows to superheroes. I really, really like the, the new Supergirl because it's a throwback to another kind of superhero narrative, which is to say cheerful. Yes, I'm your sister and you love me. Okay, Piggy, look, maybe I didn't handle this the best way. Ha! To Muppets. They've actually kind of gone the extra mile to convince me that these are actual creatures that live in the world. Award-winning silver screen directors are also making their move to smaller screens. You've got Steven Soderbergh on Cinemax with The Nick, David Lynch coming to Showtime with Twin Peaks, Martin Scorsese to HBO with Vinyl. And there are a lot of opportunities in television. One of them is that you can endlessly explore and re-explore the same themes with the same characters. Because this is just the beginning, or should I say, the beginning of the end. But eventually, as with tonight's series finale of the CBS hit CSI, we have to say goodbye. I hate to let go of a show. Get down in here! Get down! Hold on. Breathe. Breathe! Still, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio says, just when you think you'll never love again. There's so many, many shows. We're kind of chomping at the bit for them to come back.
you know, get the dishes done. And, and watch your and favorite watch. shows. Yeah, sit and, sit and see what, what else happens. Such good stuff. It was a gift this past week for anybody planning a birthday party. A federal judge declared that the song Happy Birthday is in public domain. The company that held the copyright, Warner Chapel, had been earning an estimated $2 million a year in royalties from the song. It says it's considering its options, but barring a successful appeal, the song is now free for anybody to sing. And that's good news for us as we celebrate the start of Sunday morning's 38th season on the air. Sunday morning is proud, but now we're allowed to sing in celebration with no fee and no fuss. So proudly we state it's our year 38 without fear of litigation. Happy birthday to us. So sue me. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. When and how the Federal Reserve raises interest rates is a question former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke is glad he doesn't have to answer anymore. But other questions Bernanke and his wife Anna are happy to discuss. Nora Donnell of CBS This Morning dropped in on them at their home in Washington. One of a president's most important appointments is chairman of the Federal Reserve. Anna, what was your reaction when your husband was offered the Fed chairmanship? I burst into tears, <laughs> and they were not tears of joy. I'm pleased to see that Ben's wife, Anna, and his two children, Alyssa and Joel, are with us today. If only Anna Bernanke had known what lay ahead. Wall Street watched Washington with shock and fear. Just one year after Ben Bernanke became chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, the economic alarm bells started going off. A history-making 777-point nosedive. Now, a year after leaving the Fed behind, Bernanke is putting the crisis into perspective, his perspective. You described this last crisis as the worst in human history. Worse than the Depression? The financial crisis itself, the, the collapse of asset prices, the near uh, collapse of so many large financial institutions, in my view, was a worse crisis than even what we saw in 1929-1930. The summer of 2008 saw panic across the globe. It was that bad? Well, if you look at the major financial firms, uh, you know, most of them either failed or came close to failing or needed some kind of help. Uh, and it would have taken, Mark, taken Mark, down the entire economy. It would have taken down. I mean, it did. The problem was that financial firms were increasingly putting their money into complex investments that many people hardly understood. Call now and ask for a no-cost Many based on risky subprime mortgages. No one can do what Countrywide can. When the housing bubble burst and those mortgages started going under, the firm started to go under too. Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. Given the Fed's job to keep the economy stable, it all landed squarely on Bernanke's desk. The Fed will try to use a blowtorch to thaw the frozen credit markets. If it was the worst in human history, why didn't more experts like you see it coming? Well, we didn't. We understood part of it. We saw that there were problems in the housing sector. We saw there were developing problems in subprime mortgages. But we didn't see, what I think almost anybody didn't see, was the vulnerability of the financial system to those factors. Ben Bernanke was never the most obvious person to lead the Fed. He grew up in small-town Dillon, South Carolina, where his father owned a pharmacy started by his father. It looks a lot smaller than it used to. Ben and his younger brother, yeah, Seth, we who is now a lawyer, too, yeah. often visited their maternal grandparents those, in nearby Charlotte. Those, uh, Grandma and Grandpa's bedroom was right here. Right. And then the real action, of course, took place over here in the kitchen, where Grandma cooked all her wonderful specialties. Young Ben's specialty was numbers. He achieved almost perfect SAT scores, 1590 out of 1600, as his brother well remembers. We haven't had areas where we were really competitive. That would have been bad news for me. Bernanke spent a lot of time on baseball, not playing it, but tracking the stats. His notebooks, they are jam-packed with all the players' names and all their different statistics. I remember looking at those things and saying, hey, you know, I just don't see the attraction. But, uh. When he was 11, Bernanke won the South Carolina State Spelling Bee, which earned him a trip to Washington, D.C. 
I made it to the finals, and the word they asked me was Edelweiss, which is a Swiss flower, which was the name of a song in the movie Sound of Music. Edelweiss, Edelweiss exactly. Edelweiss. Unfortunately, Dylan, my hometown, did not have a theater. I had not seen the movie, so I had never heard of an Edelweiss, and I misspelled the flower. And so I, was, I, 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 didn't, I didn't win the National Spelling Bee. How do you spell Edelweiss? E-D-E-L-W-E-I-S-S. I'll never <laughs> forget that word. Back in Charlotte visiting his grandparents, there was something else he never forgot. I used to sit on that porch there with Grandma. She would tell me stories about the Depression. She lived in a town where they had a shoe factory that had shut down, and because there was no jobs, the children of the shoe manufacturers didn't have shoes. And I thought that would, didn't make any sense at all. And I remember getting interested in you know, how an economy can get messed up. <laughs> As an economics professor at Princeton, Bernanke studied the Depression, concluding that back then the Fed didn't do enough. And so with the economy getting messed up under Bernanke's watch, he was acutely aware of the potential devastation. He says the problem was that to save Main Street, he had to bail out Wall Street. There is still the perception out there that Congress and Bush White House and you bailed out big banks at the expense of little people. Well, you know, I'm totally sympathetic to that concern. And I have to say that when I would go outside and see a bumper sticker which said, where's my bailout, mm -hmm. I really understood that concern. And it was not something we wanted to do. But the reason we did it was not because we cared in any way about banks or their shareholders or their, even their employees. We cared because we knew that in a massive financial panic, if banks begin to fail in large numbers, as we saw in the Great Depression, the implications for the average guy in Main Street are going to be massive. The heat came from all sides. Bernanke saw the cartoons. Did you hear about the Fed? The online satires. So what qualifies him to run the Fed? I don't know, maybe the fact that he has a nice beard. And the digs from politicians. What, what was it that Rick Perry called you? Traitor or nearly a traitor. To play politics at this particular time in American history is almost treacherous or, or treasonous. But Bernanke believes firmly that his actions kept the recession from turning into a depression. Now, seven years later, with economic growth and employment up, Bernanke had a ready answer for high school students in Charlotte this month. The Fed had to do a lot of unpopular things, and they were necessary, absolutely necessary, and I think history is vindicating them already in the sense that the financial crisis was stopped and the economy is recovering. But what about the recovery at the bottom of the ladder? The gap between the rich and poor is growing. In fact, there's estimates that income inequality is at its widest since 1928. Why is that? Well, it's a very long-term trend. It is not something that just happened last week. It's not something that was caused by the recession. One explanation, not the only one, is that as our society becomes more globalized, you know, more highly technological, that people with lower skill levels are getting left out. Bernanke believes education is key, and that message is literally brought home in a program started by his wife, Anna. After growing frustrated during a career in education, she founded the Chance Academy to help urban kids who are homeschooled. The Bernankes are putting their money where their mouths are. This academy, you finance pretty much yourselves. Pretty much, right. We subsidize just about everybody. These days, Bernanke works primarily at the Brookings Institution, a Washington think tank. He and Anna have kept the same relatively modest townhouse near Capitol Hill. The chairman of the Federal Reserve, the most powerful man, some argue, in the world when it comes to the markets. Now you advise two hedge funds and you make a lot of money making speeches, but you live still pretty much the same life. Well, we, you know, this is the way we like to live. And, uh, you know, we enjoy our pleasures. You know, we still do the Sunday Crossword Puzzle together and walk the dog. This month, the financial world was watching to see if the Fed would unleash higher interest rates. <laughs> The glare the fell on current chair Janet Yellen, who decided to maintain the near-zero rates of the Bernanke the years. Ben Bernanke seems perfectly happy to let someone else take the heat. Do you miss being Fed chair? No, I, I really like being able to look in the newspaper, see a story about some kind of problem and say, gee, I hope somebody does something about that. <laughs> and that it's not your problem. It's not my problem anymore, no. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.
When you're committed to raising the standard, you're bound to ruffle some feathers. At Happy Egg, we like to say we farm differently. But in reality, we produce eggs the way people used to, by partnering with local small family farmers who raise our happy hens on eight or more acres. Because in our opinion, farming shouldn't be complicated. It should be happy. Choose happy with Happy Egg. Visit happyegg.com and look for the yellow carton at a store near you. Happy Egg.